Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sound Girls podcast. I'm Rebecca Wilson, your host today. And we're going to take a little trip out to the Mojave Desert to talk to Pat Kearns. He's a recording and mix engineer. He's been working in the music business for over 29 years. And you'll hear this epic story of how he built Goat Mountain Studios, which is this giant 3,000 square foot, fully solar, world-class recording studio in Joshua Tree. So we talked about mixed rack favorites, coal mics, tips and tricks for working with folk bands. So you can listen to this and over a hundred more Sound Girls podcasts in all the normal spots. Okay, I hope you enjoy hearing from Pat as much as I did. Thanks for coming on today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because I just I've been at your studio and I I have so many questions. And um, how's it going in Joshua Tree today? It's beautiful. It's like 72 degrees. There's it's a bit breezy. Yeah, living the dream out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of wanted to talk. You have so many skills. I mean, you're a producer. You're a recording engineer, a mix engineer, a singer songwriter, a guitarist, a vocalist. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about mostly uh, your recording engineering experience. And uh, I was hoping you could start me off a little bit about kind of maybe Portland is where it all kind of started for you or just walk me through a little bit of the initial intro into audio mixing. A little bit. It started actually in Seattle uh, in the early 90s. I just happened to be there. I didn't know you could do this as a career that it was even a job. I was a musician in bands and kind of stumbled into it and stumbled into an internship in a studio and also had a friend leave a four track cassette deck at my uh, apartment. And I got sick and made some songs on the cassette uh, on the four track and passed them around to my friends. And they asked me, they were like, that sounds really cool. Can you help us make a demo? And uh, that's how I ever got my, my very first paying job. You said you were sick? Yeah, I got sick and I was stuck at home and I didn't have a TV and just very quickly got bored and this thing was sitting over on the kitchen table. It's so funny how little things like that just shape the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very strange. I, I did this job for this band, made them a little four-song four demo in their practice space on their, their four-track cassette. And uh, and the rest is history. Yeah, it took took a couple days, and they paid me seventy dollars and a bag of weed, and I think they gave me an SM fifty seven, and I was just blown away. Like, uh, I was like, wow. <laughs> I got my start, like my foot in the door up in Seattle, but I very quickly moved to Portland because, uh, kind of the post Nirvana years in Seattle, being in the recording studio, everybody was so serious, all the bands, and it was really. Like it felt like stakes were high because you know everybody was scouting and it really kind of made music not fun. That's interesting. Yeah, there was such a microscope in Seattle just because of all that came out of there during those few years. Everybody was looking to sign the grunge band, and and I think it it made everybody kind of lean towards that sound for a moment, which that's natural. That happens everywhere, but I don't think like it was it was not working for a lot of the bands I was seeing coming through this particular studio or that kind of thing, or people just weren't having fun. And uh, I was friends with a bunch of bands from Portland and I would go down there and people would have fun. You know, when you're not making a lot of money either way uh, or whatnot, it was kind of like, why don't we go here? It was more fun. So I, yeah, I moved back to Portland at that point. And uh, uh, that's how I knew all those bands from Portland is, is growing up there. So is that Studio 13? Was that your first? Yeah, that was my, f my first place in uh, my punk rock friend's dad's basement. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we all lived in a punk rock house in northeast Portland. And uh, the studio was literally in the cellar. <laughs> <laughs> no noisebleed. No, no, we were underground. <laughs> it was good. Uh, it was really small. Uh, and then, you know, it was wild because things went for full circle. I moved out of there and I had another studio for a while, but then I moved back in and uh, Jason ended up with a guitar shop on Northeast Sandy Boulevard in Portland. 
and I had a studio there for a decade called Permapress in the back of it. So, so then tell me a little bit about Permapress. <laughs> like Permapress was more, uh, it was just a bigger, more established kind of setup. And did you, is that when you started amassing your own gear or how did it work? I started amassing gear like pretty soon after that, that experience with the four track, like the 57 <laughs> as a gift was uh really like made me think about things like that <laughs> and uh what happened with bill snell is uh bill saw me in the punk rock house with all this gear i'd picked up like a 16 track half inch reel to reel that i towed around and things like that at this point and he was like dude he's like you need a proper space and so he actually this was also life-changing so he's like, we could do it here. We go down in his basement, and uh, he's already got a book from the library of how to build the studio. Really? And, That's yeah, hilarious. I mean, he was just great. And uh, we go down in the basement, and like, I'm just like, I, I can't see it or whatever. And he's like, well, just like imagine that this wall is not here. And I'm like, what? And he like picks up a sledgehammer and just like starts <laughs> knocking the wall down. And uh, it just really like I never thought you could really you know change your world like that so quick or that way or dramatically and he made me think of things all over again and so I guess fast forward what was the decision how did you end up like for you know seeing Goat Mountain out how did you come and decide on Joshua Tree and then tell a little bit about that story Permapress ended up going 10 years and it was probably year seven or eight uh, that I was leaving on tour uh, with my old power pop band, Blue Skies for Black Hearts, and our neighbor who owned this, uh, the marijuana store next door. <laughs> we were, yeah, we were in the good part of town. There was a, it was, it was kind of awesome having a recording studio because there was a bar that served like, you know, uh, fryer food and that kind of thing, and then a, a marijuana store, and then a music store with a recording studio in back. It was an amazing block. That's uh, an all-star block. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Uh, and uh, But my neighbor, he just told me was we were leaving on tour. He was like, hey, uh, weed's going even more legal at, on the next election. Uh, he's like, if it if goes full on, I'm going to buy you out of your lease and, and move a cafe in there. I'm going to have a marijuana cafe. And I'm like, oh, you know. And he was just being courteous and giving a heads up. He wasn't being a, you know, that, it was really the respectful thing to do. Yeah. That didn't uh, happen, but it really made me realize, like on that particular tour, like you do, you, you have a chance to reflect. And uh, I started thinking about, like, do I see myself still in the studio five years from then? And I could picture myself still working. I just couldn't picture the studio existing with the, the gentrification that was rolling up the street and just, you know, people with money coming around saying, hey, we might want to buy you out of your lease or do things. And I just knew the neighborhood was changing. And I could tell the way that our my setup was, in particular for the recording studio, I wouldn't be able to outlast it. Uh, that it would become an issue. I would become, you know, my noise and uh, uh, my type of thing was going to become a problem in this new shiny neighborhood that was going to arrive. And so neither my wife or I have proper ret retirement, but on the end of this tour, uh, we ended up in Joshua Tree because uh, Susan and I had bought a rental house here for super cheap. When did you move full-time out to the desert? What year? 2017 is when we finally arrived here full-time. Uh, we hatched the studio plan in about 2015, early 2015. It was like when basically what the decision was is that we had no leverage in Portland, Oregon to buy anything or do anything. And renting a place for a recording studio seemed really risky in that moment of gentrification. But we did realize that we had assets up there that property values had gone up and that kind of thing. And so it was actually my idea. Uh, and But it was super easy to convince her to, I was like, why don't we just sell everything in Portland? Like, get out of here and start over down there. And she loved that idea. Uh, 
So it took a lot of time to put that in order, but that's what we did. I mean, and then where you ended up with Goat Mountain, maybe you could tell me a little bit about what's involved when you're going. I mean, obviously you'd worked in studios, but how <laughs> did you how did you go about designing it? It's this beautiful uh, how many square feet is it? It's it's huge. It's 3,000, exactly. It's, yeah. Tell me about the rooms, too. I mean, it's got a giant live room that sounds beautiful yeah. for drums. It's got a mixed room. What else? A 1,000 square foot live room uh, with two isolation rooms off that, which both are large. One of them, I don't have a grand piano here, but one of them's designed to take a grand piano in isolation. Yeah. And, and, and how did you guys design it physically? Did you work with an acoustician or how did you, did you just do treatment? Well, no, no, I got super lucky again. And this is one of those things where people come into your life and uh, things happen. My PR person and longtime helper, Katie McIntosh or Moreno Elst at this point, her husband, uh, Ignacio Moreno Elst, uh, he was in architecture school and he happened to be one of my closest friends. And uh, he'd had this house that he'd already uh, remodeled and designed uh, that was on a lake in, I think, Illinois. Uh, it was in Dwell Magazine. We were just talking about that going on. And when he told me about the house, he told me nothing about the house. He was like, the moon rises over this tree over here and the lake is here. And it was just all about your experience of... Uh, being in that environment uh, through his building. Like, you know, he had this window or this thing, this view. And I just felt like that was the guy. Like, even though he was only in his first year of architecture school, he was my guy, you know? <laughs> and, and and we could afford him. Uh, I couldn't imagine, you know, money's an issue for Susan and I, so I couldn't imagine, like, walking into some fancy architecture thing and, like, here we go. Like, we were going to be yeah. out of the game by the time they handed us the plans. Yeah, Nacho agreed to work for super cheap for us for a summer, and he came up with the first like draft of the plans, the design of it, which was really 90% of it. And then from there, we took his plans to a civil engineer that lived uh, uh, locally to us. And he helped us get those plans ratified with the county. And he also helped us find uh, a couple general contractors to uh, bid on it with us. And we found the right guy to build it. And we were kind of you know, off to the races. Uh, that took several years uh, to do all that that I just said. But it was, uh, it became methodical uh, in a way. Like there was just a list, a checklist of that we'd made to the order to get things done. How did you go about um, getting the gear that you have in there? Maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, your outboard gear that you love and maybe the console, stuff like that. yeah. A lot of it is just, I've never, you know, John Vanderslice used to, when I used to work for him, he used to say, uh, never sell gear. <laughs> and uh, I took that to heart, especially if I had something really good. And so I've, I've held on to things uh, my entire life. Uh, and so like I have a Fender twin amp that I got in the late 80s, maybe early 90s that I have here that that's, you know, when our friend Alex was here, how I met you. Uh, yes. Uh, that's one of the amps he was playing here. And uh, I just continued to acquire things. So everything that's like in my mix rack, which is the main thing I think you're referring to, is gear that it's all analog gear and it's stuff that I bought for a specific task is going on. And I still employ those tasks, but now I live in this analog digital world uh, that's mixed and matched. And so uh, uh, in my case, because I grew up on tape machines and on, on mixing desks and that kind of thing, I really like the Burl converters. They're not like tape machines, but they have the, these transformers in them. And I, I kind of say you can heat them up by how hard you hit them and uh, with signal and what's going on. You it has uh, subtle tonal changes that can be really powerful when you're making a record in the long run. Uh, and I have that all matched up to uh, 
an old Amec Angela board from 1985 that actually, I try to go with friends and connections and things. So we were, I knew I needed a more substantial mix console than the one I currently owned at that point when we opened up this room just because of the large room and, and different factors that were going on. Uh, with the type of records uh, I knew I was going to be making out of here. And uh, we were shopping, as you do nationwide, to see what consoles were available and that kind of thing. And uh, I got a text message from an old friend, Chip Mabry, (laughs) in Portland, Oregon. And he knew this guy because he managed the building that had this recording studio, Rex Recording, in. And they were, uh, uh, ironically, the studio was getting gentrified out they were going to knock the building down to build something else and uh russ gorsline was uh i think he was in his early 70s at that point and just he was calling it he was just like i'm not gonna rebuild i'm gonna go small at home and he wanted to sell the console and and uh i knew the console a little bit because they used to be next door to jackpot recording when i worked there at the old jackpot recording on Morrison Street in Portland. And uh, I just knew it was a great board from uh, being around it. And Russ always kept perfect condition his gear and just took care of a lot of things. And so uh, he gave me a good deal and we settled on that. And I, like you do with a lot of gear like this, there's a lot of like, you gotta do things yourself. I'll just uh, uh, rent a truck and often fly to mm. where the location of the gear is and then getting like a, uh, you know, one of those panel trucks and load on the stuff and then drive it back home. Is that what you did? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's so cool. I do that a lot. That's great. No, I, I, I'm one of those, I do things better myself than trying to arrange. I'd rather just do it. I hear you. I trust myself more than the movers to <laughs> move something like that around. So how, so. when you got it to Joshua Tree, how did it fit? It was fine. It could fit in the door or were the doors. Obviously they were on the studio and everything was ready, but yeah, no, it was great. I mean, I had to get, I think I had six or eight friends to help me unload this thing. Uh, it's really heavy. Uh, it like Susan and I together trying to lift it. We can kind of scooch it a little bit, like a few inches, but I need at least four people, if not six to move it around the room. Uh, so my buddies, we, they, we lifted it off the truck and put it in place and it was kind of cool because you could at this point in time start to see what the control room might look like. Uh, but it was also scary cause, uh, the board came with a bunch of cut wires and just boxes of spaghetti, just wires and <laughs> wires and, and connectors and, and, uh, there was an instruction manual, but it was like. Uh, the original instruction manual there was no uh, like you had to back in you had to look at the patch bay and back engineer the connectors to figure out uh, how everything had been hooked up in the studio did you do all your own soldering and wiring or or? oh yeah we had to completely rewire the patch bay I kept what I could but every single like piece of outboard gear or in our case like uh every mic input from uh, our live rooms or anywhere else we put things uh all that had to be wired in and uh it just made me I sat on the couch staring at this board uh for maybe two days uh I was alone. Susan was back up and working in Portland, Oregon. And I just sat at looking at this thing overwhelmed because we'd taken the studio and built it from the ground up all this way. And there was a really fast, like kind of dirty way to just put this place in action and go, but it was going to be always really crazy and messed up like the patching it's true i've seen projects like that or even stages like that and it's just you're always trying to dig your way out from from then on yeah that was my realization so i knew uh i had never taken on a wiring job of this scope (laughs) before and it took me i think what would it take me it took me all of july august september and all of october so four months 
of wiring oh my gosh. Uh, this place to get it completely together. Where And I basically showed up eight hours a day, five or even six days a week, uh, just coming in here and, uh, uh, you know, soldering or prepping or whatever was going on uh, for that period of time. Just the labor uh, of love. Yeah. Yeah. We had some downtime. It was uh, during pandemic and it was hard to get things. And sometimes I like I miscalculated how much wire we needed in here, like grossly miscalculated how much <laughs> wire we needed in here. And so we ran out of wire twice. Uh <laughs> And that you know, and it was always a surprise. You don't you you go through it so quick because you're just dragging this wire around. All of a sudden, it, the end comes out of the box. You're like, oh again? no, we're out again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we ended up putting. Uh, I I bought six thousand feet of wire, of which we used about five thousand five hundred feet of the new wire, and I was able to rescue about two thousand feet of the wire that the board came with uh, to be used in here. <laughs> here. <laughs> so Just on, unreal. So can you tell me, you know, I had never seen those coal mics that you have that you used for overheads. And I was really impressed with the, the room tone in there, I guess you'd so to speak, or just the overhead, the sound of that live room. Can you talk a little bit about those mics and where you got them and what they're used for? And I was apparently the only one who had never seen them before, but it seems that they're rare or no. That's, that's, you don't see them often. They're not quite rare. Like you can get them. Uh, they, yeah, they are. That's funny that, that I could, I understand your reaction too. Cause like to engineers that are knowing about them, they're like the, like oh Coles, <laughs> <laughs> so they're Coles forty thirty eight. Uh, I bought a match pair on purpose for this place when we opened it because we have a beautiful live room that was designed by Nacho uh, specifically for sound. So it's uh, no parallel walls. It's very live, uh, but the the reverb in it is just very pretty, and there isn't any slaps to make anything un un unintelligible it's just very smooth i noticed that sounding. it was it was magical i would even say yeah it's just it's a it's a fun fun place to be and uh to play music in and to sing and things that were you, you as a human respond to the room uh it's a great place to be but so these mics what i where i first became acquainted with them was uh through old pictures of the Beatles in the studio. Like, you know, seeing these things when I was a teenager. And uh, these were the mics that they used at Abbey Road. And I think other, you know, Pink Floyd, all the bands that went through there, uh, these were the popular overheads for the drums. And they're ribbon mics. And they do a really good job of, like, I think I've never been to Abbey Road, but I've always got the sense that it's it's a very live room uh, as well. It's not you don't walk in there and the room is not sterile. It's it it plays back to you. Uh, I got the feel, and since we were building a room of of that type, that was designed for people to perform in uh, and to capture. Uh, I thought that this was a good place to start. And what's great about them is they are really dark sounding so they really like the, the the symbols no matter how hard somebody's cracking them uh the symbols and and sharp noises of drums are never harsh on these mics they're always very nice a little rounded off maybe but they also have this great thing as being ribbons they have a figure eight quality to them and i've failed to read the the manual Closely enough to know how figure eight that pattern is. Uh, but what I do notice in, uh, is the side rejections pretty good on these microphones. So just by placement of bringing them in kind of closer to the drums than you would think, and by paying attention to what you're rejecting and, and using them in a match pair, you can really uh, kind of focus your spatial feeling of the drums, if you follow me. Yeah, I do. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as what you've learned as an engineer, I mean, you've been mixing for, I guess, over 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
What kind of philosophy do you sort of bring if, say you're doing a folk band, if people that were listening wanted to know sort of your recording tricks for that? What do you kind of value the most or what do you start with? And what do you just tell me a little bit about your process? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing one now so I can kind of compare it to what I'm doing with them. Um, it's best for them. So their lineup is accordion, uh, upright bass and acoustic guitar. The best situation for them to get it like I, and this is what I like, too. I like the magic of people performing together. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes a, a band like a, a folk band that's. Uh, where the recordings come out best. I mean, you sometimes have to sacrifice a little bleed or things going on uh, to just get this feel of people being together uh, instead of it being all locked to a click track and maybe a little too sterile. Mm -hmm. It's it's always a balance between... Because as an engineer and as a mixer, like I want things separated as much as possible because it makes my job a little easier later uh but sometimes you're doing that in sacrifice of that human magic that happens and so i'm always looking for the the balance of that uh trying to get the artist as much separation so we'll have control later but without making them feel like it's weird uh that that it's separated in that way where they don't feel connected to the other people. Sure. With this particular folk band, what we did, I was able to get them to stand pretty far apart, not ridiculously far apart, but far apart in the live room, further apart than they would stand on stage. And then uh, it was a matter of uh, picking mics that either were appropriate for something, for some reason, uh, I think you saw those big purple things I have for the vocals. Yeah, for the isolation, uh, right? Yeah, and they go around. It's this big purple deadening thing. Uh, I don't even know the brand name. Uh, but they're the only purple ones out there because I Googled yeah. them after I left your studio. Yeah, it looks like a big like reverse eggshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the mic sits in that, and it just sort of isolates things up. Uh, I love having a tube mic on upright bass. But in a situation like that, without that purple thing, you might get too much bleed. But that was one one thing that we did. So I had this big purple thing in front of the bass. Uh, we also had the advantage we could take a DI. Anytime I could take a DI, I would take a DI out of these people. Two, the accordion player, uh, we wanted to, she was, she's the star of the band and everything going on. So we, uh, I put a ribbon mic on her, uh, this, uh, AEA 44 CE that we have, which is like the big Frank Sinatra mic, but uh, the ribbon is dark again. And so that, that shrill thing that can sometimes happen with accordions, that's just sort of uh, dampened down. Uh, I, I come a little bit from uh, the engineering school of Shelly Yakis, who believed in mismatching mics. So if you had a really bright source, he would put a dark microphone on it. And so that's the idea behind like having that dark ribbon microphone on uh, the accordion. And it also has the advantage of that one's really figure eight with a lot of rejection on the sides. And I could reject off the acoustic guitar player who was slamming his acoustic guitar because they're kind of a little punk rock, a little burning man <laughs> kind of thing. And so that was a way for me to keep the bleed off the accordion <laughs> player uh -huh. and that kind of thing. And then we baffled them up, too. I had some baffles in the room, you know, with extra blankets thrown over them just to, uh, you know, keep that acoustic guitar a little deadened off the other people and that sort of thing. I would love for you to talk about the wall of snares that you have. I mean, how many <laughs> snare drums do you have? And it, 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 it took my breath away when I saw it. <laughs> It's just like, wow, that is the coolest. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we got to bring up Mitch Marine. Uh, Mitch Marine is my friend. He's Dwight Yoakam's drummer. And uh, uh, I met Mitch because he heard about me out here from a mutual friend. And Mitch has got a cabin out in Landers, uh, California. We're outside Joshua Tree, like out in the open desert. Mitch has got a cabin a couple miles away from me. And he's like, I got to meet this dude. And uh, he called me up and... Uh, uh, offered to bring a drum set over and I said yes and he got here and he ended up uh, 
we have four drum sets here now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have got an uh, old uh, Gretsch kit we've got from the 60s. I've got two awesome Mapex kits. Uh, uh, one's maple walnut and one's custom walnut uh, that are both just really like great sounding, especially the toms blow me away. And then uh, I've got this uh, Hewer jazz kit that's like a swing band kit with a 26-inch tw kick drum that's all based around one of Mitch's snares. It's a uh, mid-40s, early-40s wood-rimmed Ludwig snare that's just beautiful. Wow. Uh, there's 13 more snares for a total of 14 here today. <laughs> Uh, Mitch, things come in. So far, nothing's left. Things keep coming in, which I just love. It's a good uh, business plan. Yeah. It's good for both of us. Storage, yeah, yeah. storage for, he's got a lot of drums and, uh, I'm storing them for free, but we use them and, uh, uh, we have a lot of fun and I owe that guy a phone call right now because, uh, uh, we're talking, we got to do some music together at some point. So, and not to mention, uh, is there a challenge with dirt and dust being in the desert and gear, or is it? I mean, it felt so clean in there when I was in there. No, I clean a lot, but it's it's surprisingly they did a really good job building it. The building's tight enough that I haven't had too much of a problem. That's how it felt, it felt sealed and really just nice and clean in there for gear. Yeah. I have to dust and we take extra care. Like when the, the ribbon mics are out, but not being used, I put bags, you know, cloth, cloth over them and that kind of thing. So that anything blowing in the air doesn't get stuck to the magnet. That's something I do worry about out here because like, uh, you could take a magnet to the sand and you can pull iron oxide out of the sand. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, but it doesn't, I don't seem to be having too much. Of, this has been a concern, but I don't seem to be having too much of a problem yet. But I do uh, clean and dust quite a bit, too, just to keep whatever is going to be present down. I mean, it's a destination studio. So oh, definitely. I mean, we came out and we stayed in your Airbnb. It was an incredible place that was so much more of an experience than I had counted on and delightfully so. How's it going with LA and our, our bands hearing about you now? Cause you've been open two years. I've been open a year and a half about now. So when I met you, it was really, it was last October. So it was just a year. Not even a year. I never would have thought <laughs> that. It felt so established. Yeah, November 3rd, 2020 was when we, that's what I look at as our official opening. Cause we, we closed up all the places the cables run underground mm -hmm. in here. We closed them up and I uh, haven't opened them recent or since then. You know what we've failed to cover yet, which is so intriguing is the, <laughs> uh, is the whole environmental aspect of your studio. Yeah. I was just going to say the solar power uh, is what I, I'm most guessing you're getting at. I am. Uh, yeah. Unusual thing. This is another thing, uh, like I didn't set out to do it that way. It was just that when we got this property, the cabin that was on the property was already off the grid and it had a solar setup. And the, the first thing that happened is uh, just to even get the cabin going, I had to fix that thing because it was broke. And so I learned a little bit at that point. Uh, and then when we started talking to people like the civil engineer and, and things like that about power, uh, and we started calling around, we found out uh, that it was going to be really expensive to get electricity uh, to our place. It was going to be fifty dollars or $60,000 to hook up to the electrical grid. God, that must have just been staggering. It, well, it, it, it became empowering instead of being like, oh, wow, like that sucks or whatever. Like the other thing I noticed is that all the power lines, I don't know if this really means bad electricity, but all the power lines hum in this neighborhood and it just seems like the power goes out once a week for the people on the grid and what's funny is when you say neighborhood that means there's like a dusty roads <laughs> and and acres of land between houses just for everyone listening. Yeah. that's the neighborhood I've, I've i've got maybe maybe within within a half mile i've got maybe a half dozen neighbors yeah exactly <laughs> that's your neighborhood yeah my neighborhood uh so just, yeah, power's bad out here. And, 
I was just thinking about like, you know, if I'm going to have a proper recording studio, I'm going to have to condition all this power. And I'd been working up at Bob Weir's studio, TRI, and he had this crazy like $25,000 power uh, transformer out in the parking lot. And uh, I was like, just imagining, I was like, oh my God, like, am I going to need something like that like, right. on top of this? And uh, and then it, it occurred to me, I was like, well, let's let's try this this uh, off grid stuff out, and uh, I eventually tracked this company down called Outback, and they did made pure sine wave inverters, and uh, that became kind of the hub of our whole system. And we tried a smaller system of theirs out on our cabin, and the audio and the gear just ran pristine on it. And uh, that enabled us during this time, we were under construction and actually one of the deals when our general contractor took on the project was uh, by that time I'd committed, I was like, I'm, I'm going off grid. And he's like, that's fine. But he's like, I'm not doing any of that. You're a hundred percent in charge of that stuff. And so uh, it's been a little... Uh, I shouldn't say a little. It's been a lot of extra stress to be my own power company. So there is a downside of that, like when I'm watching things. Uh, but it's been really rewarding. And I've also, because we have this pure sine wave inverter and we have all this gear that really responds to that. I mean, I'm just blown away. I've never had a studio where the noise floor is, I mean, it's just ridiculously low. Nothing makes any yeah noise my fender twin the light is burned out on it and i have to go over and like look at the tubes and look at the switches to make sure it's off and it's on it's just, <laughs> you can't yeah, hear anything. It, yeah or turned off later uh yeah I, I don't know uh if it's on or off at that point the thing is so quiet and that just just blows me away at my last studio i mean there was all kinds of you know, well, put a ground lift on that, or mm -hmm. you have the electric guitar on, and I, I had sometimes we'd I'd have them turning ninety degrees against the, you know, the magnetic field of the Earth to see if that's better, and uh, or doing the wire to attach to a knife that's right. tucked into your pants. <laughs> I've done that trick. Yeah, I have not had to do that trick here at this studio yet. <laughs> Uh, hoping for it. We had my, my friend Luke Dawson came in about a year, year plus ago. He was one of the early sessions. To, he came in to do some pedal steel work one day and he had a buzzy amp and, uh, it was so funny. He's like, no, nope, my amp doesn't buzz at home. I'm like, I don't believe it. <laughs> Turned out Luke was right. Uh, but all it was, was a guitar cable that I'd given him off the wall of the studio that the shield that was bad. broke. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. So we just had to throw that away. But uh, yeah, that, that all those experiences have been uh, amazing with being my own power company with it. It's, it's made my job easier, like the audio part of it, actually, like, you know, because everything's clearer and there's not something in the background. Uh, but it's also, yeah, a lot more stress, definitely, hmm. but it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. As the guy rutted it, I tell you, it has been totally worth it. I just, I just loved it. It, it has such a, I guess a spiritual feel and you can record with all the doors open straight out yes. to the desert. If we could, <laughs> that is as long as it's not windy and dusty. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's so unbelievable to have conditions like that. Cause in a studio, you're just basically hermetically sealed into what feels like a fuselage usually. And this is, yeah. this is so, you're so in tune with the outside world and, and the air it, it's, it's counterintuitive and so beautiful. I've been in this business 29 years now. And I've never had a studio with a window. I've had a studio with a window, like a tiny one, but never like where you actually had a view. Yeah, and this is like 360 of of an incredible, it's Joshua Tree. I mean, you probably see like 60, 70 miles to the east, uh, 30 miles to the west, uh, at least 15, 20 miles to the south. And then Goat Mountain. It's just right there. Yeah, yeah there's a mountain right that out just my back careens door. up behind the studio. <laughs> so when you're not looking into this vast expanse, you turn around to see this beautiful mountain right in front of you. It's it's really, yeah. yeah. 
It has it's this mountain in the Mojave Desert that has a lot of presence. It it looks a little different than all the other mountains around it. Mm. It's a little alone out in this basin. Uh so yeah, that, that had to be the studio name. Uh but yeah, I, I wanted to have views and I wanted to have that experience. And I wanted everybody to have the experience coming here that they were like in touch with the desert. And so we kept it. I mean, we have patios up to the edge of the building, but you can walk out the studio door and within just a few feet have your, your bare feet in sand. And uh, uh, we just tried not to disturb any of the natural vegetation as we built this place, you know, as little as possible around here. It just, ah, I'm so happy with how it turned out because it, you really have a sense of place here. You sure and, do. And, uh, the magic of this desert, this place, this little corner of the Mojave Desert especially, uh, that was a big reason for why uh, Susan and I wanted to live here and wanted to move here, is there was just something, uh, it's just really quiet. And so as a musician, I know for me, like uh, when it's quiet and I'm like sitting out in a chair out here in the desert, like uh, uh, the melodies and things just start, playing in my mind mm -hmm. and then it becomes it's then I just have to write them down like it's not like I'm I don't write them I just write them down and, and the quieter the quieter it is the more in tune you can to hear it yeah and I wanted to share that with people here and, and mm -hmm. the the windows of the studio that that sort of sense uh is a is a big part of it I guess I'd want to just step back and talk a little bit more about your mix rack and gear that you love and just a couple oh, yeah. of just some like, just some advice that you might give engineers, things you just kernels of wisdom. Never sell gear. That was coined by John Vanderslice, but that is a great rule, especially when you get something that's a treasure. Uh, and I've been lucky to come across some treasures in life. I have a, uh, an 1176 that's really special. It's from 1971. It's an original blackface URI. It's got a mystery switch on it uh, that has been there since uh, I've known the two previous owners, one of which was Kenny G. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I bought it from Kenny G's engineer. And uh, I just, I love that piece of gear. It's got a ton of personality. It's a major part of every mix down I do. Uh, it's kind of the middle center compressor in an area of compressors, how I mix. Um, that's one of my, my favorite things. Uh, another set, these, this isn't all of it, but probably the other one that's most special in that rack. Uh, I was I worked at this recording studio in Portland, Oregon, run by Larry Crane, uh, called Jackpot, and Larry just always he runs Tape Op Magazine because of the reviews. He just always had the best gear in there, and he got these Chandler. He got one Chandler LTD two in Jackpot, and this thing I couldn't believe this compressor when I started trying it, and I knew what it was. It was one. Of, it was modeled after. Uh, uh, compressors that were in the consoles of Abbey Road uh, in the 60s, like classic stuff that the Beatles used. And I don't know all the details, but somehow like uh, Chandler and Abbey Road got together to relicense these designs, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, beginning. Uh, I love this compressor. It was just great on bass guitar, but it was also amazing on acoustic guitar. Uh, I could find uses for it all the time. So I started looking on eBay uh, for some of these, and I found a pair of them for, you just didn't ever find them, so they weren't cheap, but I bought them. Uh, I bought this pair, and they came in the mail with the power supply and everything and the cables, but on the back of it, there was no, uh, nothing was screen printed on there telling you what was input, what was output, and what was the power supply. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, yeah, and they were all taken... Uh, uh, I think, uh, XLR. So it was like, you, 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 I didn't want to plug the power supply into the wrong thing. Exactly. And so I called Chandler up and I think they're in, uh, they're on the East coast, New York city or something. I talked to, uh, like the secretary at the business or something like that. And I just told her what my situation is. And she's like, I think his, his name is Will. She's like, wow. She's like, I'm going to have Will call you back. I was like, 
cool. And so this guy, Will, uh, gives me a call back like a day later. Uh, and, uh, he's the dude making these things, uh, and behind the, the whole business and that kind of thing. And he, I explained to him my problem and he says, what are there serial numbers on those things? And, uh, I think I have, it's either, uh, forgotten. Uh, it's either 23 and 24. Or I have 27 and 28, but it's under 30. And I told him what numbers I had. And, uh, he started laughing. He's like, you're going to love this. He's like, and told me where, what the deal was, which one was the input, which was the output, which was the power supply. But he's like, what well, you have there, you have the original p- prototypes. <laughs> uh, the first, th- yeah, the first 30 I made and they were all made with parts out of the closet from Abbey Road. And uh, I'm not a uh, such a gear fiend that I read about everything inside the gear. Like, I know what's going on with the compressor. But what turned out to be with these ones is that they were made with a uh, germanium transistor inside, which uh, you can't make anymore because of environmental laws. You can't get them. And so uh, I was able to get a pair of these with the original transistors in them. Uh, and so that was just cool. Uh, I don't know. It's story. Yeah, man. It sure made me feel good. And I mean, obviously from some of the other stuff we talked about, I really like, uh, the history of Abbey road as a studio and the, the care that they took with their gear. And, uh, those recordings that came out of that place in the sixties, still to my ears to this day, uh, stand up, uh, you'll listen to a Floyd record or from, that period or uh, the early seventies or any of the, especially the second half of the Beatles stuff. The first half of the Beatles stuff sounds dated, but that's fine. But the second half, I mean, that's just crazy that, you know, people don't make stuff these days that sounds any better than that uh, in a fidelity way. And that's just incredible that we haven't moved. It's become cheaper and more readily available, but it hasn't become better. So I guess as we kind of move toward the close, is there anything that you would want to say uh, to maybe engineers that are starting out or just anything I missed about the studio that you'd want to tell us? Uh, I'll stress again, never, never sell your gear. <laughs> sell gear. <laughs> uh, yeah, but also like follow, follow your dreams and, and take the time to do it right. It may take a lot longer, but... I mean, I'm sure there's points in time where it's good to cut corners or you got to. But uh, the payoff is for taking that time to figure out the proper way to do something or to put it together, just to uh, have that moment to reflect and step back and say, am I doing this correctly? Uh, that's so worth it. Don't let it stop you. Uh, hesitate. You got to move forward. But... Uh, my life, because I set this place up correctly, is so much... I don't have to run around and chase things, uh, you know, so badly, even when things go wrong. Uh, and that's where life really tends to get hard when you don't have it together. It's not, you know, you're usually okay till something goes wrong, and then, then it's really bad. The true test of a character is when things, yeah. are, things go south. So, okay, last thing... Give a record recommendation for anybody listening. Like, what's old, new, rock, not, whatever. Just what's a f- your one of your favorite albums? I'm going to pull it. You know what I have been going a lot to lately is that new Charlie Crockett record. Uh, oh, I haven't listened to it's it. It's just class. It's just like straight down the middle, classic country. But it's real country, and it's done with a lot of polish. Uh, I've just been really enjoying it. I can't remember the title of it. Uh, that's, that's one that's been regularly making it through my, my, uh, and then I've been, now that I see this, I remember the last three mornings I've been uh, listening to Harry Nelson every morning. All right. Uh, And I don't know why that was, is, uh, I, he's one of my favorite, favorite songwriters. I don't know. Uh, He's. You don't, you, he's so playful. You got to check this guy out. He's, He's like a, he's like a child Harry uh, 
Yeah, he was he was the Beatles' favorite songwriter at ah, one point. Okay, kind cool. Of thing. And he's he's kind of he's just he's uh, he's one of the people that got the one man Beatles tag. Him along with Emmett Rhodes. Okay. Uh, but he's just a, a super creative, special songwriter uh, with the most beautiful voice. Uh, I mean, just the guy could sing. I think that went on because I, I had a singer in here earlier this week, and I just went for a singer one morning, and then I was stuck on Harry for a while, which happens. Uh, it's a good thing. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and for building such a, a Shangri-La. Well, you can't take Shangri-La since it's Rick Rubin's thing. But if there was a Shangri-La to is you. It, <laughs> how is that? I'm a big Rick Rubin fan, but I don't know that with Rick. Oh, what is yeah. That? Shangri-La is the name of his studio. And if you haven't it, seen, I will recommend to everybody on Netflix. It was on there. It's like a five part series. I think on Rick Rubin slash Shangri-La tracking the studio, it's got his process. It's, it's definitely, I'd say one of the best docs I've seen in five years. It's just, plus I'm just a Rick Rubin fan. So <laughs> I, I love that guy. I did not know about that uh, particular doc, but I like when he does things, especially like that, like I love his podcast Oh, I know. Broken uh, the, Record. The, That's I was just yes. listening to the ones that came out with John Fushante and uh, the Chili Peppers one. It's like a two-parter. Yeah, I haven't listened to that one yet. One of my favorites is him and Will Oldham, and they talk about their love of the Misfits and Danzig. Oh, I didn't <laughs> just, hear that one. I'm like, oh my God, losing my mind. Did you uh, hear the Neil Young one, though? No, no, but I've I've seen them talk before, but they have a broken record. Yeah. It's like, a th I think it's even three parts of them. It's great. I mean, it's, that's oh what God. I love so much about that is because it's peer to peer. So it's yeah, I, I only discovered that podcast maybe six months ago. Me too. Uh, so yeah, that's been, that's been a new kick for me. I'll have to dig back and find that Neil one. That'd be cool. Yeah. Pat Kearns, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, so good to catch up with you. So good to catch up with you, Rebecca. I miss seeing you. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. You can find out more information on the website, soundgirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.